That works. I'm not sure, because now it's blinking at me.
Okay, I think that works. I hope, anyway. <laughs> I don't believe it. I took the battery out of the thing that in there that says old battery. That's the one that works. All right, where were we? I posted on this uh, under announcements. All I did, because uh, I guess what happened was halfway through the lecture, the battery went out on the, on the mic and I had no idea that it was gone. And so what I did was I went back to the lecture that I taught in the winter term, found the recorded lectures from that one, and put them on the announcements for the audio component of the lecture we just had. And it's scary because it's almost the same <laughs> word for word, year to year. But anyway, there isn't a heck of a lot of difference. Now that one that I posted um, will take uh, goes a little bit further than we went in the the last lecture, but there'll be overlap. So you'll be and provided this one um, uh, tapes, uh, we should be good. And I lost my thing, so I have to hold on to it this way. All right. So we were looking at the uh, we looked at the posterior triangular region. We looked at the ligament and nuchi in the back. We looked at the trapezius muscle. We've considered that one. Looked at the movements associated with the trapezius muscle. Innervated once again by the accessory nerve. That would be the spinal portion of the accessory, the part that came off the, came off the spinal cord, tracked back up to the foramen magnum, and then came back out the jugular foramen. And it was going to be the one that was going to supply both the trapezius muscle and it will also supply the sternocleidomastoid muscle. That would be the accessory nerve that we're looking at. And there's a, a look at the accessory nerve as it tracks back. Uh, supplying the trapezius muscle as well. We looked at the latissimus dorsi muscle innervated by the thoracodorsal nerve off the posterior cord of the brachial plexus. Latissimus dorsi will come from the, the uh, fascia covering the sacrum ilium, comes from the lower uh, thoracic vertebrae, comes up and attaches to the front surface of the humerus in that bicipital groove going to give us the ability to extend the shoulder joint, move it back this way. It would help us adduct if the, your arm was out, and it would be a medial rotator. It will turn the arm inward. Those were the descriptions that we gave to the latissimus dorsi. Large muscle on the back, innervated once again by the thoracodorsal nerve. That's the one that's going to come from that off the posterior cord. I think we, we did look at the latissimus dorsi. And I think we did look at the levator scapulae muscle coming from the Posterior tubercles on the cervical vertebrae, the top four cervical vertebrae. We had it coming down and attaching onto the superior angle of the scapula here. We had it when it contracts, it would help along with other muscles elevate the scapula, lift the scapula up. It does have a tendency, but when it pulls, you can see it would take the point of the shoulder and try to rotate it downward. But I think as I said before in the, in the previous class, with all the other stronger, larger muscles that are there to elevate the shoulder, particularly the trapezius muscle, then that rotary component of the levator scapula doesn't really come into play. Dorsal scapular nerve would be the nerve to supply the levator scapulae muscle. And its major responsibility would be to help to elevate the scapula, lift it up. And the other thing we used it for was a landmark, if you like, helping to form the floor to that posterior triangle region that we were looking at. All right. Well, I've got to figure out where I am here uh, so I don't skip things. Have a tendency to skip over things. Okay, there we go. Rhomboids, right? Rhomboid muscles would be the group of muscles here coming. I think I have another picture of it somewhere. Mm. Oh, 
and there we go. Rhomboid muscles, group of muscles. Now they're technically divided into two parts. The upper portion of the rhomboid group here coming from the top, the last cervical top thoracic is referred to as the rhomboid minor. And then the bottom portion, the larger part of it, all the way down to T5, is referred to as the rhomboid major. For our purposes, we'll put them both together and simply call them the rhomboid muscles. Don't need to distinguish. Once again, so what we're going to do is come from the vertebrae here and come over and attach to the medial border of the scapula. You can see from the direction of the muscle fibers traveling down and, sort, and laterally this way that when you contract that muscle, you would adduct the scapulas. You take the medial borders and bring them back towards the vertebral column adducting or retracting the scapulas. And you can see from the direction of the muscle fibers, it would take this inferior angle and rotate it backward in this way, which in turn then would take the point of the shoulder and rotate it downward that way. So the, ro the rhomboid muscles, the, both the major and the minor together, would be adductors or retractors of the scapula, and they would be uh, assist in downwardly rotating the point of the shoulder. And we mentioned that before when we looked at the scapula thoracic joint, that movement of the scapula that if you elevate the scapula this way and rotate the point of the shoulder upward, we would then have muscles that would allow us to, then co to contract, move the scapula back down, and move the point of the shoulder back down. And that would then be the responsibility of the rhomboid muscle to de depress the point of the shoulder once it has been elevated. Innervated by the dorsal scapular nerve is the same nerve that's going to give us the supply to the levator scapulae muscle. That would be the rhomboid major, rhomboid minor, and as I mentioned, we do We'll, we'll, we'll take them both together and uh, lump them both as, as one. Serratus anterior muscle is one that comes from the ribs, top uh, seven, top eight ribs. Notice it's picking up its attachment here. It's going to borrow, not borrow, but it's going to help um, uh, attach to the ribs and, the, and kind of, um, what's the word I want? Not borrow, it's, uh, uh, never mind. It's going to attach onto the ribs here virtually the same attachment that we're going to get from the uh, external abdominal oblique muscles. External abdominal oblique muscles share, that's the word I want. external abdominal oblique muscles are going to share that attachment on those ribs, and the external obliques are going to come this way. The serratus anterior muscle goes back the other way, follows the contour of the rib cage around, goes between the ribs and the scapula, ends up attaching to the medial border of the scapula, but now on the anterior side of the scapula. So it's going to be a direct antagonistic muscle to the rhomboid muscles because it's approaching and attaching from the opposite direction. And you can see from this picture that long thoracic nerve, which we picked up off the brachial plexus, is going to be the supplier to the serratus anterior muscle. And you can see as well that if you had any kind of damage uh, to the rib cage here, there might be a chance that that long thoracic nerve would be, uh, might be damaged, fairly susceptible to damage in any kind of um, disruption here of the rib cage in that area in the ribs. I've got another one for the serratus anterior. You can see how it follows the contour of the rib cage around. will go between the ribs and the, and the scapula, attaches onto the medial border of the scapula, and it will be innervated by the long thoracic nerve. It's very easy to find in a cadaver dissection. You just look for a little white line traveling down the serratus anterior muscle here, and that's the long thoracic nerve. That's fairly e uh, easy to see. Now, the serratus anterior muscle is going to be one that is uh, going to be responsible for, let me see if we've got a little picture of it here. Here's the last part of the serratus anterior muscle here. Coming around, we'll go between the ribs and the scapula and attach onto the medial border here. 
and you can see how it's going to be a direct antagonistic muscle to what the, serrated, to what the rhomboid muscles will do. So the serratus anterior muscle will take the scapulas and rotate them around to the front. They will abduct or protract the scapulas, moving them around this way. And because the inferior portion of the serratus is a lot thicker than the top portion, it will then take that inferior angle here and rotate it so that the point of the shoulder will now be rotating upward. So it'll take this inferior angle and rotate it out laterally this way, pull on it and rotate it up laterally. That in turn would take the point of the shoulder and rotate it up at the same time. So that would be the two things you get out of the serratus anterior. You get abducting of the scapulas or protracting, bringing them around this way, and you'd get upward rotation of the point of the shoulder out of the, from that muscle. That's why sometimes it's referred to as the boxer's muscle because anytime you push your arm out this way, the scapula has to rotate from this position around to the front Okay, in doing that. And the other thing you have to remember is, the remember we said before, that when you start to lift your arm up this way, that at a certain point, around 90 degrees perhaps, you now have to start to recruit muscles that'll take the scapula and rotate the scapula up as well in order to complete that range of movement. We already had the trapezius muscle doing that, rotating the point of the shoulder upward. Now we're going to also recruit the serratus anterior muscle to also rotate the point of the shoulder upward. So both of those muscles would serve in helping to us, uh, helping give us a complete range of movement on the uh, glenohumeral joint, the arm moving up this way. Okay. Protraction or abducting of the scapula, upward rotating of the point of the shoulder, or if you like, you can take the inferior angle and say that it is laterally rotating, it's coming out this way which in turn would take the point of the shoulder and rotate it up that way. Serratus anterior innervated by the, once again, the long thoracic nerve is responsible for that. All right. Next step. We'll take a look at the muscle that caps the shoulder. That's the deltoid muscle. It comes in three parts. One part of it's going to attach to the medial portion of the clavicle, come down and attach onto the deltoid tuberosity. Middle portion will come from the acromion, come down and attach onto the deltoid tuberosity, and the back part here comes from the spine of the scapula, comes around here, and once again has a common attachment onto the deltoid tuberosity. The deltoid tuberosity was a fairly distinct roughening on the lateral side of the humerus, and it's going to give us the attachment for the deltoid muscle. The whole deltoid muscle will be responsible for abducting the arm, bringing the, allowing you to bring the shoulder up this way for abducting. It's not going to be the muscle that will start and or initiate that movement. We'll, we'll pick out another one uh, in a minute or two. But once it starts to move, then the deltoid muscle will pick up a mechanical advantage and then allow us to complete that movement of abducting. If you're looking at the front part of the muscle, the clavicular portion of the muscle, then you notice that it comes in front of the shoulder joint. So not only will it assist in being able to, to move the arm outward this way, but the, the front part of it will assist in flexing the shoulder, moving the shoulder up this way. And because it's on the front side, it will also allow us to give a little bit of medial rotation to the humerus, turning the humerus inward. So you'll get medial rotation and you'll get flexion of the glenohumeral joint, plus you'll get the, uh, the ability to assist in the movement of abducting. If we look at the back part of it, the spinal part, you'll notice that it is now behind the shoulder joint. So it is going to be assisting in the movement of extending the shoulder, moving the shoulder back. And because it's on the back side like that, it will laterally rotate or turn the humerus outward. 
it will as well contribute to the movement of abducting, but because it's behind the joint, it's going to be an extender of the shoulder and it's going to be a lateral rotator. It's going to go the opposite way. The middle portion here is a straight abductor. That's all it can do is help. It's probably the primary part of the muscle. It does is allow you to move your arm out this way in abducting. That's the, uh, the deltoid muscle. The deltoid will be innervated by the axillary nerve. And if you remember, we looked at that brachial plexus, the posterior cord divided into two terminal branches, an axillary and a radial. The axillary nerve was going to go in that quadrilateral space, that little four-sided space, and that allows it then to wrap around behind the um, surgical neck of the humerus. So the, so the axillary nerve will be the nerve responsible for innervating the deltoid muscle. And we picked up a little bit of its pathway looking at that quadrilateral or quadrangular space. All right. Terry's major muscle is a muscle that comes from, I think the, one of the ones up here had a little bit better look at the terry's. There's the terry's major muscle there. Comes from the lateral margin, bottom lateral margin of the scapula. Comes up and follows the same pathway and the same uh, design as the latissimus dorsi. Will attach as well almost together with the latissimus dorsi into the bicipital groove on the front of the humerus. That's the teres major muscle. And if we look at it uh, that way, there's the teres major muscle coming from the uh, border of the scapula, comes up, and its attachment into the bicipital groove is along with the latissimus dorsi. So whatever movement you've got out of the latissimus dorsi, you would get out of the teres major muscle. That is, it will help extend the shoulder joint. It will be a medial rotator, turn the shoulder, turn the uh, shoulder joint inward, the humerus inward. And what, if your arm is abducted or moved out, it would help to bring it back in. It would help to adduct. So whatever movement you've got out of the latissimus dorsi, you can then uh, attribute as well to the teres major muscle. Innervated by the lower subscapular nerve. You remember off the posterior cord, we ended up with three branches coming off. Uh, we've used the thoracal dorsal to supply the latissimus dorsi. We're now using the uh, lower subscapular to supply, in part, the teres major muscle. Virtually the same kind of idea, movement and description as you're going, and attachment as you're going on the humerus as you're going to get with the latissimus dorsi. That would be the teres major. Then, looking at the back of the scapula. We know we have the spine of the scapula comes across this way, and then the expanded lateral end of the spine will give us the acromion. That creates above the level of the spine a fairly decent little fossa, supraspinous fossa, and in that we'll end up with the supraspinatus muscle. Supraspinatus muscle will come along this way. It will go underneath the acromion. And when we get to look at the shoulder joint, we'll, we'll build into that an, a bursa pad to help protect the tendon of the supraspinatus from rubbing up against the underside of the acromion. But we'll do that when we get to the, um, when we get to the, the, the joint itself. Okay. It then will come down and attach onto the very top portion here of the greater uh, tubercle of the humerus. So there would be our supraspinatus muscle. And then immediately below that, the spine of the scapula from this infraspinous fossa, we would have the infraspinatus muscle. And it would come across and attach once again onto the greater tubercle of the humerus just below the attachment of the supraspinatus. Comes around this way. And then from the lateral margin of the sternum here coming up 
and attaching to the greater tubercle just below the attachment of the infraspinatus muscle will have the teres minor. So we have supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor all attached from top to bottom here on the greater tubercle of the humerus. Supraspinatus and infraspinatus are going to be innervated by the suprascapular nerve. Uh, let's see if I got a picture of that guy coming around somewhere. Hopefully, there was. We looked at that one before. Suprascapular nerve was going to go through that little suprascapular notch. It was going to supply the supraspinatus muscle. It'll go around the um, neck of the spine of the scapula to supply the infraspinatus muscle. That would be the nerve supply to the supraspinatus, infraspinatus muscles. The teres minor muscle, it will be innervated by the axillary nerve. Now here's the axillary nerve that we picked up before. It's gone through that quadrilateral space. It's going to supply the deltoid muscles. We described all three components of the deltoid. And as well, it will supply the teres minor muscle. That would be the responsibility of the axillary nerve. Axillary nerve also supplies a little bit of the upper lateral part of the shoulder cutaneously. So if you kind of touch this little part of the shoulder up here, might well be then the axillary nerve picking up that sensory information. That would be its responsibilities. And this picture also picks up that suprascapular artery that we picked up coming off the, th the thyrocervical trunk that went across the top of the scapula. And then it hooks around with the nerve around the base here of the, uh, of the spine of the scapula. And that artery would then also, you can see, give arterial supply to the same, this same region. Supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor on the backside. You can see how they attach onto the greater tubercle. Supraspinatus muscle will be the muscle that will be primarily responsible for initiating the movement of abducting, moving the arm outward. In, this, in the anatomical position like this, you can see that if you pulled on the deltoid muscle, the deltoid muscle would just lift the arm up. But the supraspinatus muscle coming across the back this way, if it pulls like that, it begins the movement of abducting of your arm. And then once the arm is out this way, then the deltoid muscle has a different angle of pull on the humerus, and it would then pickle, pick up the responsibility of uh, abducting. But to initiate the movement itself, you require then the supraspinatus muscle to be in good shape and have the nerve innervation to it not interrupted. Infraspinatus muscle on the back uh, coming around here is going to allow you for a little bit of extension of the shoulder joint and, a little, and some lateral rotation, turning it out. And the same thing you could apply to the teres minor muscle. Um, you're going to get a little bit of uh, uh, extension and lateral rotation. The other thing is, um, on the back side, these three muscles are going to reinforce the, the fibrous capsule of the shoulder joint because their attachment really is into the fibrous capsule of the shoulder joint. So these are going to be three of a group of four muscles that are referred to as the rotator cuff muscle group. So not only are you going to get individual movement, that is the supraspinatus muscle will be the instigator for abducting, and we're going to get some movement out of the infraspinatus and the teres minor muscle on the head of the humerus, turning it outward particularly. But their other major responsibility will be to reinforce the back of the fibrous capsule of the shoulder joint. And there are going to be three of the group of four muscles referred to as the rotator cuff muscle group. Supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor, if you go from top to bottom, attaching onto the greater tu uh, tubercle of the humerus that way. All right? Then, if you come on the front side of the scapula, 
very thick muscle on the front is a subscapularis muscle. Subscapularis is going to come across and attach onto the humerus here, onto the, uh, actually blends in the capsule and uh, attaches onto the uh, lesser tubercle here. That's all of that would be then the subscapularis. Big muscle will have then two nerves. We're going to use part of the, uh, that lower subscapular to help innervate the lower portion of the subscapular and we're going to use the upper subscapular to innervate this portion of the muscle. So the both we, in the notes you notice upper and lower subscapular uh, are both used to innervate the subscapularis muscle coming around this way. And once again when we look at the shoulder joint we'll pick up a bursa pad here that will help to protect that tendon as well. Uh, but when we get to the joints of the upper extremity, we'll come back and take a look at it. Now you notice here they've called them superior and inferior, but uh, upper and lower is what the terminology I used in the book, same thing. So we're coming across this way, so this muscle here is going to give anterior support to the shoulder joint, whereas the other ones we looked at, supra infrateres minor, gave posterior reinforcing of the shoulder joint. This one's going to give anterior. And its major responsibility will be as well to turn the humerus inward, to medially rotate the humerus. It'll turn it inward, whereas the other two on the back side are going to be lateral rotators. They're going to turn the humerus outward. That would be then our subscapularis muscle. And you're looking here, you're looking at the posterior cord then of the brachial plexus. We picked up the axillary nerve as a terminal nerve of the posterior cord. We put it through that quadrangular space around the back, had it supply the deltoid, had it supply the teres minor muscle. Radial nerve we'll pick up later on. It has to go back behind the humerus this way. We'll pick that one up. But we mentioned as well, off that posterior cord, we ended up with the thoracodorsal nerve to come to supply the latissimus dorsi. And we ended up with our upper and lower subscapulars to supply the teres major muscle and also help to supply the um, subscapularis muscle. So this is a look then at that design of the posterior cord. You notice how it goes behind the axillary artery, the, the middle portion here. This would be where our, pector, our pectoralis uh, minor muscle would be attached onto the coracoid process. So if we're using that as our, as our guide, then this would be kind of the second part of the axillary artery. And we're looking at the cords that are associated with that part, one medial, one lateral, and a little darker here in the orange, the one that's posterior. So it gives you an idea of where we are approximately in the, at, at that level. Okay. Um, well, let me go back here. I think that what I've got next is just a recap because we've done a, a number of these things before. So we were looking at the quadrilateral space, which was that space that used the, the axillary nerve used to go around the surgical neck of the humerus. And keep in mind, we're also going to use that space for the posterior humeral circumflex artery. One of the branches coming off the third part of the axillary artery will use that space to go around the surgical neck, right? And we had the humerus on one side, triceps on the other side, pectoralis, uh, not pectoralis, uh, the um, teres minor above and the, and the teres major below gave us the boundaries then for that, that space. So we've looked at that a few times. And so what we've got on uh, what I have on my page 20 is just a kind of a review of that. All right. And if we come back here, once again, we're looking at, we've talked about this a little bit. 
suprascapular we picked up. Remember the suprascapular artery was the one that came off the thyrocervical trunk along with the transverse cervical and the inferior thyroid. It came across the top of the scapula. It was then going to use that suprascapular notch and then we picked it up going around in this region. The nerve will run with it. The suprascapular nerve will run with it. And the suprascapular nerve will, once again, use that little notch, supply the supraspinatus, supply the infraspinatus. And we picked up the axillary nerve coming through the space, supplying the teres minor and the deltoid with a little bit of uh, cutaneous distribution for the top lateral part of the, of the shoulder. And the radial nerve you can pick up coming down this way, tracks across the back of the humerus. Um, if you look on the back of the humerus here, there will be a spiral groove or radial groove generated. And that's where we're going to run both the radial nerve will travel back behind the humerus here. And when we get to it, a major branch coming off the brachial artery will also track behind the humerus using the spiral or radial groove on the back side of the humerus. Okay. How are we doing? Not too bad. All right. So that, that on the top of the, the halfway down on that, on that page, that's a recap of what we've done before. It's kind of a... We've looked at them, and so it kind of summarizes them, I hope. All right. So now we look in the front. Coracobrachialis muscle. Coracobrachialis is a small muscle will come from the coracoid process of the scapula, comes down and attaches onto the humerus, just about as far down as the deltoid tuberosity on the other side. That's about as far as the coracobrachialis comes. Uh, this muscle will be innervated by the muscular cutaneous nerve. Musculocutaneous we had as one of the two uh, terminal thing branches or terminal divisions of the of the lateral cord. Lateral cord came and gave us the musculocutaneous nerve, and then gave a, a contribution to the posterior cord. So this little guy here is the coracobrachialis muscle from the coracoid process, halfway down, innervated by the musculocutaneous nerve. You can see that it's going to be a uh, muscle that will assist in flexing the shoulder joint. But it's not, by its size, it's obviously not a, a most important shoulder flexor that we have coming around. That would be the coracobrachialis. That's that guy. All right? Brachialis muscle. I have another picture here somewhere. Brachialis is a muscle that comes from the front shaft of the humerus, crosses the elbow joint, attaches itself onto the ulnar tuberosity. Sometimes they'll describe the attachment of the brachialis muscle coming across this way as attaching to the ulnar tuberosity and the front sharp rim of the trochlear notch, which is called the coronoid process. Sometimes they'll describe the brachialis muscle as attaching onto that uh, coronoid process as well. But I think in the notes, I, I, I try to use the ulnar tuberosity as my attachment for the brachialis muscle. Major muscle that's going to cross in front of the elbow joint will still be innervated by the um, muscular cutaneous nerve. And its, its only responsibility will be to flex the elbow joint. That's all it can do. Crosses in front of the elbow and flexes the elbow. Now, you may run into, but I haven't put it in there. The radial nerve is a nerve that comes, I mentioned, comes back behind the humerus this way and then kind of pokes out the lateral epicondyle of the here. You may come across some references that portions of the radial nerve will help to innervate the very lateral part of the brachialis muscle. That's a possibility. I didn't include it in the notes. I've just called the musculocutaneous nerve as the nerve that supplies the brachialis. But if you start to read and you start to look at it, you might come up with the one part of the radial nerve innervating this more lateral part of the brachialis. That's also been written. 
So that's the brachialis muscle. Biceps brachii is going to be over top of the brachialis, and it will have two heads to it. You'll have a short head, which will come from the coracoid process, and you'll have a long head. Now, the long head comes from a little bump that's just on the top rim of the glenoid fossa. It's called the supraglenoid tubercle. So, in fact, the tendon for the long head of the biceps brachii passes through the fibrous capsule of the shoulder joint and pokes out the front. And it runs then in the bicipital groove. The long head runs in the bicipital groove. And when we get to look at the shoulder joint and we look at the ligaments and the capsule that goes around it, we'll pick out a ligament that goes across from greater to lesser uh, tubercle across the um, bicipital groove, helps to keep then that long head tendon in that bicipital groove here. So that's what the transverse ligament here is referring to. We have the two tendons, the, uh, the one on the short side, the short one and the long one. They'll merge together to give you one muscle one muscle belly down here. We'll cross the elbow joint, and we'll have one component of it attached here to the radial tuberosity. Radial tuberosity picked up as a fairly distinct bump below the head, of the, the head and neck of the radius. That will be the tendon attachment then for the biceps brachii muscle. The other attachment will be by an aponeurotic attachment coming along immediately this way. Now, aponeurosis is a thin tendon material, um, like if you remember from looking at the abdominal muscles. The abdominal muscles were, had aponeurosis from about the midclavicular line in towards the midline. That was all aponeurosis. From here back was, mus was uh, muscle fiber. Aponeurosis is a thin tendon material. And so what we're going to get traveling down here on the medial side will be the bicipital aponeurosis. That's the other attachment for the biceps. And this is just going to blend in with the deep fascia here now what we're going to develop will be a series of muscles that will travel down your forearm that will have a common attachment to the medial epicondyle, the, the uh, common flexor origin of some of those muscles. And so those muscles will be covered with a deep fascial layer, an envelope of fascia. This bicipital aponeurosis is going to blend with that deep fascia, covering the muscles that are going to come, we're going to look at coming down the, the forearm. So that's, that's its attachment. So there's our bicep muscle. Uh, it does have some function at the shoulder, but it's not our most important function to be able to assist the sh in shoulder flexing. Its major responsibility here is going to be the uh, ability to flex your elbow. It's a, one of the chief muscles for flexing the elbow, coming around that way. Then you also have to think about it. If you're, you're in the supinated position this way, radius is on this side and the ulna is on this side and the bicep is coming down this way. If you pronate your forearm and roll the radius over, you can see how the t this tendon of the bicep muscle will be then wrapped around the radius as the radius rolls over this way. In the, in the process of supinating, rolling the radius back in the opposite direction, we, we will look at later on when we get to the back of the elbow, there is a muscle called the supinator. And its job is to take the radius and roll it like this. But another, another responsibility of the bicep muscle will be in assisting in supinating, rolling the radius back in the opposite direction. So if you pronate, you take the tendon and you kind of wrap it around the radius. If you contract the bicep muscle, you will unravel that tendon and you'll roll the radius back in the opposite direction. So the bicep muscle not only is a key muscle in allowing us to flex the elbow joint, it's also an important muscle in the process of supinating the forearm. 
We do have a muscle called the supinator, but the bicep muscle plays a, a distinct role in assisting in the strength of that movement of supination, moving it that way. Okay. The, uh, that makes sense that if you take this muscle, if you take this bone and roll it around over here, that tendon would wrap around. And if you contract that muscle, then you'll roll the bone back in the opposite direction. You'll supinate in that fashion. Fairly important muscle in supinating, actually. In some cases, if you think about it, I always tell this in the, in, the, in the other course, a right-handed person has more power supinating. Uh, not, no, let's back it up. If you look at the way the, the mechanics of tightening something, like a screw or a bolt, if you tighten it, if a right-handed person tightens it, You've got to tighten it this way. You have to supinate. In order to, if you're going to screw a screw into a piece of wood, a right-handed person does it this way. Screws it in this way. So you're supinating. That's your powerful movement. You not only have the supinator, but you've got the biceps brachii muscle, which is a powerful supinator as well, enabling you to do that. So a right-handed person is at, is at a little bit more of an advantage, in, provided it's a mechanic. It's not a an electric drill you've got, it's a hand, hand screwdriver, right-handed person has a lot more advantage in being able to push down and supinate and to drive the screw in. If you think about a left-handed person, it's the opposite. The left-handed person has to pronate in order to do that. They've got to do this, right? They've got to go the opposite way. Our pronating muscles are not as strong as our supinating muscles. So a left-handed person has got to go the opposite way in order to turn the screw like this. And so they're at a little bit of disadvantage. So most of the things that are done and, and developed within the world, more or less, are to the advantage of a right-handed person versus a left-handed person. So, okay. Just something to think about. Okay, so where are we? We've got the biceps done. And it's going to be a powerful uh, elbow flexor, and it's going to be a really powerful, uh, important supinator as well. Process of supinating. Right. Now, if we take a look at the back of the humerus, as I mentioned before, we've got the deltoid tuberosity sits here. That's going to allow us attachment of the deltoid muscle. And we have a groove across the back. And a lot of the times that groove, if you take a look at the uh, humerus in the lab, you'll notice the groove is really almost defined by the deltoid tuberosity. That groove across the back is called the spiral groove or radial groove. We're going to use it to track the radial nerve, and we're going to use it to track the deep brachial artery. Both of those are going to track behind the humerus using that. All right. So what we're going to do, we need to, we're going to look at the muscle on the back of the, of the humerus, the tricep muscle. Tricep muscle will, obviously comes in three parts. The long head of the tricep is this one. The long head here comes from just the bottom rim of the glenoid cavity. There's a, once again, there's a little bit of a tubercle on the bottom edge of the glenoid fossa, glenoid cavity, infraglenoid tubercle. And that's going to give us the attachment then of the long head of the tricep muscle coming down this way. And here's our radial groove, uh, spiral groove, coming across the back of the humerus like this. Use that as a landmark. So if you are going to go above and lateral to that groove, 
you would then get the attachment on the back of the humerus for the lateral head of the tricep muscle. It will come from above and lateral to that groove. And you can figure out, if you come below and medial to that groove, you will then get the attachment on the back of the humerus for the medial head of the tricep. So you use that spiral groove as your landmark. Above and lateral will be the attachment for the origin for the, long, for the lateral head. And if you go below and medial, it'll be the origin for the medial head. The long head comes from behind the, the shoulder joint, comes from what's known as the infraglenoid tubercle, a little bump uh, on the bottom rim of the glenoid fossa. All three of those heads will merge together. They'll all cross behind the uh, elbow joint and they'll all attach onto the olecranon. So all three of them are going to be responsible for extending your elbow. Primary muscle for extension of the elbow will be the triceps, right? And as well, you'll notice that this long head does go behind the shoulder joint, so it would assist a little bit in the movement of extending your shoulder, moving your shoulder backward. The other two don't have anything to do with the shoulder because they start from the back shaft of the humerus. All three heads of these things will be innervated through the radial nerve. So as the radial nerve tracks back this way, across the back of the humerus, it will give branches to supply all three heads to the tricep. And the last one we'll do is a small little one called the anconius. Anconius, you can see, comes from the lateral epicondyle of the humerus, comes around back this way here, and attaches on to the radius. Is that some radius? Yes. No? Ulna. So not the radius, ulna. This is a little bit of an extension of the tricep muscle. It's called the anconius, from the lateral epicondyle back here to the back shaft of the ulna, helps to extend the elbow a little bit. You can see from its size it's not that important. It will still be innervated through the radial nerve. The radial nerve will take, the radial nerve and its divisions are going to take care of everything on the back of your humerus, everything on the back of your forearm. When we get down there, we'll find the radial nerve will split and divide, but uh, it's going to take care of most of, the, most of what we've got on the back of the arm and the back of the, of the forearm. So this little muscle here is from the anconius. From the lateral epicondyle, runs into a, a little bit of a ridge here on the back of the ulna, and it's going to be uh, muscle to assist a little bit in extending the elbow. Okay. And you notice here the attachment of the coracobrachialis, just about the same level down as the deltoid tuberosity, just where the deltoid muscle attaches over on the lateral side, the coracobrachialis muscle will attach on the medial side to the, to the uh, humerus. Okay. What else we got on here? That's about it. Okay. I think that's, uh, I think we should be good. Let's see, that's, uh,